Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm alive. I survived the massive hailstorm this week. Oh yeah, it was so crazy. And a lot of damage, huh? Like significant floods and windows yeah, huge, breaking. Huge, huge hail. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're still here. The air is clean. Uh, and, and we've got a lot to talk about on today's podcast. Yes, that's a heavy news week. It, it really is. First, before we really get into it, I want to like revisit uh, what I, we talked about last week about Mi Wumi. So we had mentioned about how like there were reports that the army has entered. We're not entirely sure what that means, how far they entered. There was some report that came out this week that they entered like 25 meters, turned around and left. So we're not entirely sure. There are reports saying that they went in. And and we the other thing about this is that there's like the legal definition of the camps and then like the larger definition of the camps. So we're, we're still looking for clarity on this. What we do know is that clashes have continued this week. Another three people died just on Thursday. Uh, and right now things seem to be calm, but things could kick off again. Uh, we, we don't know. This is something we're going to be keeping an eye on for the next week. In other news, internationally, uh, we've got a lot of listeners from the U.S. Trump signed uh, HIFPA 2 this week. So the original HIFPA, this is the Hezbollah International Financing Prevention Act, was in 2015, and it targeted uh, just foreign financial institutions. It was really narrow, right? Um, the new version expands that to be, to be basically anybody, and it includes like full blocking sanctions, like blocking assets, you know, taking away visas and stuff like that. And it also interestingly targets agencies or instrumentalities of foreign states, basically government agencies. And it explicitly in the new bill mentions funding or supporting combat operations or joint operations of Hezbollah. And so, of course, this looks like very much designed to target Iran and definitely Damascus as well, right? Because of the war in Syria, Hezbollah is involved there. Yeah. Uh, but also... Coming from a Lebanese perspective, it could theoretically be used to target the Lebanese army if anything ever were to come out about some sort of like joint coordination between the army and Hezbollah, as some people alleged happened during the Fajr al-Zurud. The army campaign in the outskirts of Farsal. Right, in 2017, which, by the way, the army strenuously denies. But anyway, so this is there. It's sort of like a ramping up of American sanctions. Also, on that note, next Monday, uh, November 5th, we're going to have the full snapback of the uh, JCPOA, the sanctions that were lifted under the JCPOA against Iran. And so we're also just looking at that as, okay, this is this is. The, like the full Trump strategy is is coming to bear in over the next week or so, right? Yeah. Also, just a quick note, Nabi Berri said that there will not be a session of parliament before the end of October, despite what he has said previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have something interesting happening with the Constitutional Council, though, which is this, this body that was set up sort of like a Supreme Court post-Taif. It, it does two things. It, it decides what's constitutional, but it also does like electoral appeals. It's the it's the court of first and last instance to decide anything about elections for MPs or for president. Now, it, the term of its 10 members ended on June 5th, 2015. But because of just like the way things work, all of the members have just stayed in office uh, and they're the same ones who have been sitting there since 2009. Well, on the October 10th, a new law came into force saying that uh, the membership must be renewed within a month of the law taking effect. And, and I take that to mean as, as soon as there is a cabinet formation, then within a month, the, yeah. the, the new 10 members need to be chosen. And the reason for that is that five of the members are appointed by parliament and five by the cabinet itself. So you need a new cabinet in order to do this. Well, obviously, like this needs to happen, right? We need 
a a new constitutional council because these guys are way extended past their term, right? Uh, but people like Paula Yaoubian and Joanna Haddad have actually criticized this because this court is right now looking at uh, 17 appeals from the May elections, right? Including Joanna Haddad's. Yeah. And so the argument is like, well, you can't just like switch out the judges in the middle of the case. You can't just like basically choose your buddies to come in. You know, the the, the winners would get to choose basically who judges these cases, uh, which could be very problematic. Also this week, related to the Constitutional Council, uh, Reda Bugaida, who is a very prominent uh, military investigative judge, uh, prosecutor, uh, he resigned his post. Uh, in order to submit his candidacy for the Constitutional Council. So I think we're going to be seeing more of this as well, of like sort of prominent jurists putting their names out there. Yeah, and I hope the new Constitutional Council will be more active than the the previous one, because if you remember the previous one, we had the parliament extending its own term three times, and the Constitutional Council is the authority that decides uh, which laws are violating the Constitution. So it was the authority that was supposed to stop the unconstitutional parliament extension laws, but it didn't. So hopefully with the new people in, they'll be a bit more um, responsible. Yeah, we'll see. There's a whole history behind this body, which we'll get into in another podcast, sure, I'm yeah. sure. But yeah, that, that's it for this week. This is another thing coming up to be to be on the on the lookout for, right? Yeah. Uh, it's been 158 days since Hariri was designated uh, as our prime minister designate, and we still don't have a cabinet. And, and I'm actually kind of surprised at this point. Uh, I really thought that there would be one by, by now, but no, things are still hung up on, guess what, Christian representation. The latest talk is that Maybe the LF would get four ministers, social affairs, labor, culture, a deputy a PM spot without a portfolio. But then maybe also they'd get the economy ministry as well. But there's no there's there's no like actual movement. There's no sign whether this will actually come to fruition or not in the next few days. Also, the Sunni opposition a problem has not been resolved. One new thing we had this week was Gibran Basile tweeted out that, you know, inshallah, there will be a cabinet before October 31st, before Halloween, which is the two-year anniversary of the election of Michelle Aoun to the presidency of the Lebanese Republic. Mm-hmm. And this, I, I believe this is the first time the Basile has actually set a date. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that's that's sort of interesting. And right? Harita also said something about giving him one week or otherwise he leave the country and or, or leave the, the this role and let someone else do it. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're definitely at, at the, the end of the window the, yeah. of, of possibilities, I, I feel. And, and honestly, I over the past week, I've, I've just sort of like lost hope. Sort of. <laughs> uh, and, you know, th- there's still reasons to remain hopeful. The wrangling does seem to be down to just like one tiny portfolio issue. On the other hand, though, this doesn't necessarily mean anything. Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And and then the other reason for hope is what Basile said that uh, and, you know, and the, the Aounis, they want a new government before the end of the month for for sort of like symbolic reasons. Right. Uh, but this never really means anything. Uh, and somebody can easily just hold out just to spite them. Mm. And in the, in the meantime, I feel like we're definitely at the end of this confidence period for Aoun and Hariri. And they have both failed. Yeah. And at this point, I, I feel increasingly that if the parties have been unable to come up with a compromise, then there are no new compelling arguments to sort of force their hand. And and Biri himself, you know, he warned of like economic collapse in the coming weeks. 
they have been told this and they still have not come up with a solution. And, and all of this just means that, like, for the first time, I'm, d- I'm just doubting that there will be a cabinet. And, and I feel like this is a very real possibility that we won't have one in the next few days. For, for the first time, you know, really, I, I really thought that the, like, the politicians would be able to work this out. This is the blindingly obvious thing that they have to do. For the first time, I feel like, oh, they're not going to be able to do it. Oh, my God. And, and that's potentially disastrous. You know, people are now talking about, oh, well, maybe next year there will be a cabinet formation. I don't think we'll even get that far. You know, there could definitely be like a financial meltdown before then. For once, let me push back a bit on your pessimism. Let me be the, the, the optimistic one today. And I Role think... reversal. <laughs> I think that Hariri and Basil saying we're going to have one in a matter of a week. And then uh, Yasin Jabir from uh, Amal saying, yeah, it's taking time because this is how it should be. It should be like slow and patient and whatever meticulous. And then from most of the major political parties, no one is escalating the rhetoric anymore. This means that there is something approaching. And I read a tweet by Shamir Rukus today or yesterday saying that he will not be in the in the cabinet. He will not be a minister because he's an MP, which means to me two things. First of all, it means to me that the names have been finalized on the on the on the side of the FPM, which is like the major political group that has the most ministers. So if Shamir Rukus is not going to be a minister, this means that the names are final more or less. Second thing is that it means that he's sending a blow to Gibran Basile because most probably Gibran Basile will be in the cabinet and Shamir Rukus is saying, I'm an MP, I, I can't be a minister at the same time, but other people will be like Gibran Basile. So it's part of their internal politics. This is how I understood it. So to me, these are signs that we might have something really soon. And, and I, I hope you are right, because if, if it doesn't happen like this, I mean, there's, there's sort of this bigger picture at play, right? And that is that if the political class can't get their act together to do this very basic, simple thing that they should have been able to do months ago, uh, then how the fuck are they going to get anything substantive done? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we had Hariri this week in Riyadh laughably saying this that the delay in the in the government formation is so that a government is formed that can tackle uh, like the the needs or the hopes of the Lebanese people <laughs> which nobody in their right mind believes that that is really the reason for the delay in the cabinet it's not like the politicians are sitting there and like carefully weighing who is going to be the best economy minister to, in order to implement something from Paris 4 no that's that's totally laughable and it's it's unfortunate that you have these sorts of statements coming out from our politicians and speaking of Hariri being in Riyadh so we we have this whole issue uh, right with the Khashoggi and the conference that uh, the investment conference that happened the Davos in the Desert conference um, and and also just like the one-year anniversary of Hariri's one of Hariri's uh, more notable trips to the kingdom uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the podcast on, on Tuesday, Hariri praised King Salman's handling of the Khashoggi case. Uh, and then he went on Wednesday and met with the king. And, and, and then uh, he was on a panel with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, at, at the Davos in the Desert thing. And there was just like this cringy, really kind of humiliating moment where uh, MBS made a joke. Yeah. It was really bad. He said something like, for everyone who was, uh, who was wondering, Harir is staying in Saudi Arabia for two days, and I hope they, we don't have any more rumors that he's kidnapped or something. He's totally free. And then Harir went uh, along with a joke, and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here freely in my own will. Which is really sort of a, it's, it's, it's really bad timing. It, it, I mean, it's just not that great of a joke to begin with, uh, because it, like, new reports have uh, come out recently that, that 
about the way that Hariri was treated a year ago, but then also just the timing, right? It was basically a year ago that all of this happened. Yeah. And and so it's really tone deaf, it seems to me, to be trying to crack a light joke, it, it, especially given also the Khashoggi case and, and all of the things surrounding that. Yeah, I, I was really surprised that he made it. It's It was not well calculated. <laughs> oh, and by the way, Hariri, like, spent a maximum of like a day in Saudi. So he did not stay for two days. <laughs> but yeah, as you mentioned, this MBS joke was extra bad because it coincided with the Reuters report that Saud al-Qahtani, who is uh, Mohammed bin Salman's right-hand assistant, he deals with all the media and propaganda issues, has al- was allegedly the person who oversaw the killing of Khashoggi in the consulate, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul via Skype. And according to eight um, diplomatic Arab and Western uh, sources, Tahtani was also the person who oversaw the treatment of Hariri when he was kidnapped one year ago or when he was held against his will in Saudi Arabia and forced to resign, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the Reuters story said that Qahtani was in the room in a room with the security team. Hariri was brought in. The security team beat up Hariri and then Qahtani insults him and he gives him the resignation speech. And these are new details. We did not know this. Yeah. Yeah. So this adds evidence that Hariri was indeed held, held against his will. But what we should be focusing on, I think, here is the fact that, you know, Qahtan is just the fall guy. He's been um, dismissed. So he's taking the blame for all the actions. But we know for sure, and he has said it, that he would do nothing significant without the permission and approval of Hamad bin Salman. Yeah, I didn't even know this guy's name and until this Reuters report came out. Exactly. So focusing on him too much makes it a bit like a theatrical thing more than really what's happening behind the scenes. Okay, so all of this stuff, uh, we, we've got this one-year anniversary of Hariri's detention in Saudi, um, which is coming up on, on the 4th of November, which is next Sunday. And then we also have a, another anniversary uh, and that is what we uh, alluded to earlier on the 31st on Halloween 2016. That was when Michelle Aoun was elected president. And and so, like, we thought it would be a good idea to sort of look back over the past couple of years. And because the President Michelle Aoun's term really is a term for both him and Hariri. It's this agreement, you know, this deal that they made uh, where Hariri came back into power, Aoun became president, and they were supposed to get a lot of things done for the country and sort of like get the country back on track. So I I think what we want to do uh, in this episode is sort of like take stock and see, well, what actually happened? Uh, did they get things done or, or you know, what what were the good points? What were the bad points? What were the successes? What were the failures? Yeah, I think that's a that's a timely discussion to have because right now we're also, because of the formation of the new government, we're hearing all this talk about the plans for the future again, what they want to do with the new government, etc. So it's, it's good to reflect on what has been done rather than being like distracted with all the promises and all the propaganda coming from the major political forces. That's always like we are achieving things, we are rebuilding we are doing this and that so yeah it's always good to like look forward but sometimes it's good to take a look in the rearview mirror as well yeah i think it's a good idea to remember the political context in which Aoun became president with this whole new era al-ahl jadid starting and the thing is that this was the result of a deal between Aoun and hariri right that brought Aoun to the presidency and hariri to the premiership and uh, it was after hariri and march 14 had endorsed samir jaja the leader of the lf and hezbollah and the march 8 were supporting Aoun for the presidency and then Hariri tried to break the ranks of March 8 by supporting some Sulaiman Frangiyi. And this changed a bit the situation because this prompted Jaja to actually strike a deal with Aoun 
and support him for the presidency. And this was kind of it, you know. When Jaja supported Aoun for the presidency, there was no way that Hariri's candidate Frangiyi would be um, elected. Um, especially that Walid Jumlat had his own candidate, Henri Hello back then. So uh, the situation was that Hariri had to have an agreement with Aoun. And it's, it's important to uh, recognize why exactly that is. And, uh, and, and that is because Christians should choose the president, theoretically, in the state, right? Yeah. And so you need to have, if you the two major Christian leaders, Michel Aoun and Samir Jaja, agreeing on something, then what they agree on, if it's a Christian issue, they should get their way. Whereas Suleiman Frangie, yes, he's one of the major Christian figures, but he doesn't have nearly as big of a following. Yeah, exactly. These, those are national parties. Suleiman Frangie's party is very local. But exactly as you're saying, it was the first time that Jaja and Aoun sit together and have a political deal anyway, since they were fighting each other 30 years earlier. So this was a very important political moment and they, they had an agreement. They had a proper agreement, uh, a written one that was leaked later. And by the, in this written agreement, there is that uh, Jaja will support Aoun for the presidency and other things. Yeah, I, and I think it's really interesting that it, it's called Al-Ahad al-Jid to begin with, right? Because it, it, it technically means like the new era, right? Mm-hmm. But it also has a second meaning, which is like it, if you grew up religiously as i did you will know that in in christianity you have the old covenant and the new covenant uh-huh. the old testament and the new testament and in in arabic literally this is a second meaning of this like a, the new covenant exactly right so, Al-Al-Ahad, it so it means has the covenant as well yeah so it has the promise in it it has this like weird religious uh overtone right and for it to be the 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 title of a project started by a christian christian agreement or uh, rapprochement between the two big christian political foes in lebanon it, it yeah it might be actually it might be one of the reasons why they call it that way but yeah anyway so aoun was elected president and then the cabinet was formed uh, almost everyone endorsed hariri as far as i remember except for hezbollah they were more hesitant to endorse him but they kind of gave the green light uh, but there was this whole like rebuilding Lebanon rhetoric whereby Aoun and Harir are promising to combat corruption, to create jobs and to revamp the economy and all of these things. Uh, but the cabinet formation itself actually brought the first blow to the Ma'rab agreement between Aoun and Jaja because the Ma'rab agreement said that the LF and the FPM will have an equal number of ministers in the next cabinets. Uh, what happened is that they indeed took four ministers each, but Aoun's share, which in the Ma'rab agreement was supposed to be Three out of 30 ministers was five out of 30. So, And he appointed like FPMers, basically, or exactly. people who were very close to him, uh, if not FPM, right? Exactly. Um, and that's a significant, uh, like, in my opinion, violation of what was in the, in the agreement. And when this, when this uh, discussion about the number of ministers for each party came up again after the elections uh, this year, LF leaked the, the document, which had been secret. And in the document, we saw all of these clauses about ministries, about Jaja and the parliamentary group of the LF supporting Aoun, but also about distributing the, the highest posts in the state administration between the two forces, like deciding together or through rotation who gets which post uh, in the state, the posts that are designated for the Christians. It was a very actually sophisticated agreement that, uh, that was like very detailed and had all of these uh, clauses in it. But yeah, this 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 disagreement or this uh, tension did not stop things from happening because this m- might be actually this 2017, the first 10 months of 2017, might be the most uh, politically productive period in our uh, yeah. A lot of things history. happened. Yeah, I I mean like you you have 
Well, the, okay, so it was supposed to be like a an elections government, right? That that was what they said. Like, okay, we're going to get elections. That that is what we are going to do. We're we're going to do the state business that nobody's gotten to because we haven't had functioning constitutional institutions for years. Uh, but mainly do elections, get a new parliament in. And uh, they kind of, I mean, they, they did end up doing that. But first, they, they they didn't do it on time, right? They had to extend parliament's term for a third time for another year. And, and then after that, that gave them a little bit more time to do other things. They, uh, they, um, they appointed security chiefs, uh, the current heads of, of most of the security agencies, uh, uh, Aoun, uh, sorry, Joseph Aoun, uh, no relation, the head of the army, uh, Ahmad Osman, the head of the ISF, and Tony Saliba, the head of state security, yep. were, were appointed, uh, as well as a number of other security appointments uh, and, and other appointments in general throughout the bureaucracy. We, we did have the new electoral law that got to it in, in like June. Mm-hmm. And, and then in July, we also saw uh, new taxes passed that were pay, used to pay for uh, the new salary scale for public employees, uh, a raise they had been waiting, I, I forget how long, like 15 years for or something, right? Yeah, since 1997. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's 20 years. And then the, the, the one of the biggest things was just on the security front, right? And with uh, Fajr al-Zurud. Yeah, this, the, this whole political unity behind the army liberating the outskirts of Arsal from ISIS militants. And then the deal that brought back the Lebanese soldiers who were held uh, hostage by ISIS was a very, very celebrated achievement. of. Um, and we had also the budget, right? The first one since like 2005 exactly. or something. Yeah, so like, it, it, and, and that happened, I think, in October. And, and so like in that first year, there was actually a lot of stuff that got done. You could argue that it was a very productive year for just like getting things back on track. Yeah. Right. But then everything changed in November when things were going okay. And then suddenly Hariri appears on TV announcing his resignation. From Saudi. Yeah. So to go back to that moment uh, like and, and reflect on it a bit, a lot of people question whether Hariri was really held against his will or not. Because, you know, the official statement by Hariri and by the Saudis obviously is that he was not and by many people in the future movement. To give a short answer to that, of course he was. I mean, all evidence say that he was held against his will. The timeline of events doesn't make any sense at all. Things w- were not escalating. There was no significant political tensions. And then suddenly he resigns. He was not talking to media when he was uh, held hostage or not in Saudi. Uh, Except for Pali Aubian for the very strange interview that they had. Right? Yeah, and his own TV channel uh, was airing it. Um, also, t- everyone almost, except for a few politicians, hinted that he was uh, he was held against his will from Jumblat saying that, uh, Aoun saying like, we are waiting for his return as if his return is something that might or might not happen. And really everyone saying something related to it. And not only that, we, we had uh, Emmanuel Macron coming out uh, uh, earlier this year, I, I want to say in May, basically saying, yeah, Hariri was held captive in Saudi Arabia and I freed him, you know, yeah. take, taking taking credit for that. And the Saudis saying no, but like it's obvious that among the French uh, political sources at least, and also we had the reports from Le Figaro and, um, and the stories about the details of how the France interve- intervened, etc. So it's something, it's something that you cannot erase from history. This happened. Everyone knows it happened. And also the, the reaction, if you remember, inside Lebanon by his movement's people was also very interesting. You didn't see any big protests. You didn't see any like um, anger towards... The people were just like, oh my God, what happened? And then the future movement and uh, in collaboration with everyone was 
launched this huge campaign of just Hariri's picture with the hashtag Kilna Maak, we are all with you, all over Lebanon. Hundreds or I don't know if it's like many thousands of pictures that I saw in every corner of Beirut and and in the north and in south, etc. So if there was a big campaign. That means that the purpose was to say Hariri is in trouble and we are supporting him rather than, you know, this is a good decision down with Hezbollah or Iran or whatever. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, and the weird thing about that, just to note, is that after that, at that point and, and in the immediate aftermath of that, Ruru is probably more popular in Lebanon than he has been since, I don't know, 2009. Yeah, it was the first time that people actually sympathized with him so much because of his situation. And he looked really sad. Let's mention that, really. I mean, uh, watching the interview was painful because he looked like he was something, someone who was very depressed and he was barely able to like uh, project in his speech, etc. But the big question is, why was he kidnapped, right? And if we look at the timeline, it's it's quite easy to believe the reports from the New York Times, the Washington Post, everyone else that says that this mostly was a reaction to Hariri not taking a stance against Iran in the meeting that he had one day before this whole thing happened in Beirut when Ali Akbar Vilayeti, who is uh, the senior Iranian official, was in Lebanon meeting all the high-end political figures and he met Hariri. And apparently, according to Reuters, Hariri was given a message by the Saudis to give or to send to Velayti that says uh, that you have to stop interfering in our politics, you have to uh, calm down in Yemen, etc. Things that are pro-Saudi. And apparently, the Saudi regime had someone inside Hariri's circle who informed them that he didn't. And according to Reuters, it's someone who reports Sokahtani as well, the same guy that they, we mentioned earlier. So this meant that if this is true, and it's very likely this is true because the invitation to go to Riyadh happened really one or two hours after the meeting. Uh, this means that it was kind of a punishment. Like, come here, what did you do? I, I mean, I, I totally see that. But I would also note that we have to look at what else was happening in Saudi at the time. And that was the uh, quote unquote anti-corruption campaign, right? Where Mohammed um, bin Salman rounded up a bunch of Saudi royals, turned the Ritz-Carlton into a the world's most expensive prison, I guess, uh, and and basically held them there uh, and, uh, un- until they gave back what what they claimed were ill-gotten funds to the Saudi government, uh, to to the government controlled by Mohammed bin Salman. And also, Hariri is a Saudi citizen and a billionaire, so you know there is also just like a plausible explanation that perhaps he was just like caught up in this uh, anti-corruption push, right? Yeah, I mean, he could have still been forced to resign just under like for different reasons. I mean, these are not mutually exclusive reasons as well. So yeah, apart from whether he was uh, held hostage um, and why, we have the the other question, which is what were the Saudis thinking? You know, what was Mohammed bin Salman's strategy in this, uh, in this action? And then, you know, most analysts say that the Saudis were either expecting different results from what actually happened, or they didn't just—they didn't, didn't expect Hariri to be saved by the French. They didn't expect the political unity that was performed by the biggest leaders in Lebanon, who all supported Hariri, saying, "You know, Aoun rejecting his resignation, saying I will only accept it if he gives me if he gives me the resignation in person." Uh, Berry saying, "We're waiting for him," uh, etc. So everyone supporting Hariri. Instead of uh, the other reaction, maybe that they were expecting, which is that people would be angry against Hezbollah and Iran because Hariri clearly, explicitly blamed with very aggressive terms Hezbollah and Iran, and he said he was fearing an assassination against himself, uh, and th- citing this as one of the main reasons why he's resigning. Which I mean, if they if they thought that, that's just mind-boggling. 
I I don't understand when, when all of this happened. You know, I sort of just figured that like, oh wow, like the the people who were advising Mohammed bin Salman clearly don't know what they're doing. At least when it comes to Lebanon, yeah. You know, since then other things have happened, which made me think, which have convinced me that oh no, it probably goes a lot higher than that. Mm-hmm. But it it seems as though definitely there's just like a level of incompetence involved here because other, there's there's no other, there's literally no other explanation. Yeah, and the news about uh, you know um, the plan to replace Saad Hariri with his brother Baha confirms what you're saying, right? Because you know the Progressive Socialist Party official Zafar Nasser said it that Jumblat met with someone who was from uh, the, the, like the manager business manager of Ba'a Hariri and the other person called Safi Kalo asked like kind of proposed to Jumblat this new plan new political uh, headline that is basically uh, moving beyond Saad Hariri and replacing him with Ba'a and all of these things and reportedly Hari, uh, Jumblat left the meeting in like protest saying like I don't do these things and then uh, the meeting continued but uh, the PSP were very assertive against it saying like we're not gonna enter into ha- internal Harili politics and this happened 10 days before uh, the resignation so Oof. yeah so uh, it's and and then even Nasser the PSP official said the events that followed the meeting um, and he said what I mean is the resignation is a clear evidence that something like that was being suggested inside that they were all part of one plan and the fact that Mashnu commented on it right interior minister and future future movement official Nuhad Mashnu reacted to this suggestion saying we are not herds or sheep nor a plot of land whose ownership can be moved from one person to another in direct response to this uh, Saudi plan to replace ba- Saad with Baha and then he said um, that in Lebanon things happen through elections not through uh, pledging allegiances which is also uh, like a, sending a message to the Saudis in, in one way or another, you know, things here are different because we have a democratic political system, etc. So things were escalating in this sense, and it was clear that this plan existed, and it was clear that it failed miserably. But it did succeed in doing one thing, which is just like totally derailing the political project, right? Yeah. I mean, for a month, everybody in Lebanon, this is all anybody was talking about. Totally. But maybe, to my surprise, this did not have a huge impact on what happened next, right? Because we expected at least that the Saudis letting him go would have like very serious conditions, but I think they were just defeated in this poorly calculated mess that they created. So they accepted that really nothing will change and this was uh, just a, a failed maneuver or whatever. Because if you look at the period after Hariri came back, the same kind of things were happening, you know. This uh, Hariri came back uh, with um, one month through. We were talking about the elections, about a Paris Four conference to get uh, funding for development in Lebanon. We had the budget passed in Parliament in March 2018, just because the Saudi conference required it to be passed. Yeah, I I agree. I view everything that happened after Hariri's return in December of 2017 as directly related to elections. Uh, yeah. You had the elections in May, and then before that, you had uh, the Paris Four conference, the said conference. And in order to do that, as you said, you had to have a budget. Everything that happened once Hariri got back was basically just a, a electoral posturing. Yeah, totally. And everything after that has been cabinet formation. So it's just like... We, for, for the first year, the way I see it, the first year of the, the past two years, yeah, we did have a lot of things get done. And then we had this like crazy moment one year ago with Hariri uh, allegedly being, you know, held captive in Saudi. And then everything after that for the next year has just been like, well, yeah, elections and nothing else. Yeah. And stalemate. 
And this like kind of, uh, you know, opens the question, is this really a new era in, in any sense? You know, what's new about the Saad al-Jadid? Like, what are these achievements that they are so proud of? Uh, the extension of the parliament's term was constitutionally a scandal. The appointment of security chiefs is just what should happen anyway. You know, it's, it's it should normal. not be yeah. like, exactly. It should not be like, oh, we had a deal to appoint security chiefs. It's also a bit embarrassing that they have to agree on the names in such a ridiculous manner in terms of like who gets what. Uh, the new electoral law, we've talked about this in our earliest episodes, is really bad for new groups, emerging groups. It's really bad for um, for secular politics. It, it encourages everyone to do, to do sectarian politics more and more in the future elections. Yeah, reconstituted East Beirut and West Beirut as realities on the ground. Yeah. And the tax law was not progressive at all. The ranks and salary scale, okay, it was needed. It's good that they passed it. However, uh, it was not up to the expectations of the trade or what the trade unions had been uh, demanding for four years in the street. The diplomatic appointments, also self-evident, nothing major. And the budgets are just really embarrassing. Like you don't pass a budget after the year has passed or you pass a budget just because you have an international conference. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I understand what you're saying, but like at the same time, given what had preceded it, this I would argue was actually like, yeah, these are accomplishments. These are things that needed to happen. Yeah, but you you have to start at step one before you can get to step two or step 10 as where we want to go. You know, you've got to start somewhere and they started somewhere. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, right? But we also have to remember that this whole thing happened ahead of an election that's supposed to be a good one. And it was a a failure indeed also in terms of transparency and uh, the votes that were lost and all of these scandals. But more importantly... I've been mentioning these things um, critically because, you know, if you're passing a budget and it's not good, or if passing a a tax law that is not good, an electoral system that uh, further sectarianizes politics, you may may be putting the train back on track, but it's the wrong track, you know, it's going in the wrong direction. So, yes, things were stopped. Now they were more accelerated with this this movement uh, and the state institutions, which is important to a certain extent. But it's just going in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's also something that like, I feel that we haven't really been given a great opportunity to think about. Like everybody's so concerned with just, as you say, like getting the train back on the tracks so that we're not really thinking about where we're going. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're gonna have to leave it there. We will be back, of course, next week. Uh, we're gonna be looking at what happens on the two-year anniversary of the spooky Halloween session that elected Michelle Aoun <laughs> back in 2016. And if there is a cabinet in the next day or two, we'll come to you with an uh, with a special episode. If not, uh, we will see you next week. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.